Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you, sorry, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Anybody back there? Oh. There we go. Our series is the Christian Gospel in the Book of Romans, and we take up Palm Sunday next week. And so we'll take a pause for a couple of weeks before we complete the series, um, before, uh, before you have some great guest speakers. I've seen uh, many of the list. I don't, think I, know, I don't think I know the whole list, but I think every week is booked. Is that correct? Almost every week is booked, and, uh, and it's a great lineup. So, uh, you know, if, if I was allowed to go here, I probably would. Um, it, it's, it's going to be fantastic. I think Justin Reese is right near the beginning. Um, and so we're pleased at, at how good God has been. This series, The Christian Gospel in the Book of Romans, you should know that um, sermons should always be more than good advice. I mean, you don't need advice. I, I guess you do, but you don't like getting advice, especially if it's not solicited. And sometimes sermons can turn into kind of three things you need to live today. I, we, we, could, we could use that, but sermons are supposed to say how everything has changed because of the gospel. And so it's higher than just good advice for living. Everything has changed because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. And that really is the title for today's sermon. You could say it's because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, here then is the implications for how you are to see things and how you are to live. And I'm struck by the fact that, or I think it's a fact, so I guess it's an opinion, that we, in some of the things we're going to talk about today, we still don't get it. We still think that praising God has to do with what we feel and, you know, maybe to do with external, like singing a song or that can be great worship. But this text is going to tell us that praising God and glorifying God 
uh, has to do first with how we live with one another. And this is being written to a, a group of Christians, a church, who are trying to determine how to exist together and worship together. And some clear instruction is given, all within this frame of because of Jesus. If you remember last week, last week we looked at the weak and the strong. What the text is not about in chapter 14, and this, um, you may have seen this in, if you're in a home group, or when you take the text in chapter 14 that says um, it, some people are weak and some people are strong in, in faith or in kind of practice, and, and telling them to accept one another and love one another, Sometimes you can take texts like that and you start to think that the text is about the secondary things. So you start to say things like, well, this text is about that some people like this and some people like this. You know, preferences or different views of the rules. That's, that's, the text is talking about that, around that. But what the text is about is how you are to live together. So you can get sidetracked into discussing the different opinions that people have. That's not the foundational matter in this text. The foundational matter is people will see things differently. They'll even live their faith differently. But the important thing is, how are we going to live this faith together? How are you to live in relationship with one another? The weak are identified, and this for many of you is new, or for some of you is new. The weak are identified in in that text, in Romans chapter 14, not as the people who are the most religious, In fact, the weak are identified in that text, Romans chapter 14, as the ones who seem to need always to have formula and rules of how to be a Christian. So you have to do these six things, or you have to do this, or you have... So the weak actually in in our culture can present as strong, right? Because they tend to be the ones that might look down on other people, or because they're not really following the program. But in this text, in Romans... They're identified as weak because the context is freedom in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not really used, weakness there, as a derogatory term. But there is the ideal that Christians are to live in freedom. Your standing with God is not because of your uh, obeying rules. Your standing with God is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now you live in freedom. Yes, you will live in response to that, and that will affect how you live how you see the world, how you care for others. But it is not religion that saves you. Religion can save you exactly as much as a self-centered life. Not not at all. The trouble is that religion comes in the guise of something that saves you. And so it is a weakness identified as weakness that if if you seem to need this in your Christian faith, and Paul says there will be people in any Christian church, it was in Rome, and present in any of our gatherings, there will be people who seem to to need that expression of faith to live this Christian faith. And then he says to the strong who are identified as those who are more able to live in freedom, he says, your responsibility is to accept the weak, not to hurt them, right? Not to holler at them. But the responsibility of the weak towards the strong is to not condemn. Because Jesus Christ has accepted all of you. This because Jesus comes up again. Today we turn to chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, and then ending with this beautiful benediction prayer in verse 13. Living in the light of the gospel. Verse 1. We who are strong ought to, or, and actually Keith read two different translations. He went back and forth in there. We who are strong ought to 
Or another way of putting it in the, in the language that's original there is to say, we who are strong have an obligation to. That's a little bigger than ought to, right? A little more firm. We ought to bear the infirmities, or another word for infirmities is failings. So because the wrong understanding of infirmities is that it's like an ailment or something, or some kind of sickness or weakness that somebody has externally. It's a little bit different than that. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses or the failings of those who are weak. On one level, what the text is saying is, and here's a call for you as Christians in a church, particularly if you're someone who lives in more freedom and you're living around people who really seem to, to be into the rules and whatever else a little bit more. The, the, the call is this. You are, on some levels, to put up with them. Bear with one another. But you have a bigger obligation than that. It's not only to put up with them, it's a Christian call. And this is where the text finds its energy. The way in which you treat one another is guided by how Jesus treats and treated you. Now, in terms of Jesus Christ and us, every one of us is weak. There's no strong. Jesus is strong, and we are weak. And how did he treat us? He gave his life for us. He didn't reject us. He didn't roll his eyes at us as too self-centered or too religious and walk away. He gave his life for us. So now you treat one another because of Jesus in this loving manner. So the beginning of the text says we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And it goes on. And this is, my concern with this is that you just hear this. Um, and it doesn't kind of shatter your worldview. This should shatter your worldview because not many places are you hearing this. Your obligation is to bear the weaknesses of other people and not to live to please yourself. Very rarely will you hear this in a Christian kind of context. And in our world today, it's become almost a virtue to live to please yourself. I deserve this. Right? I need to use my gifts um, as if God's plan will somehow be thwarted if you can't. This is to not to live to please yourself, but instead to please neighbor, your neighbor. Your life is for their good. This is revolutionary in the world. And it's not the way that most of our world works today. Your living is for the good of your neighbor. It doesn't take a lot of time to describe how for many of us, and even if we're trying in this, I mean, I'm in this with you. I, I judge my day mostly on how I feel. Right? So if somebody says, is it a good day today? If I feel good, I guess it's a good day. This is calling for something different than that. I might feel terrible today, and it might be a great day. But we, we can't even think that way often. We go right to an awareness of self. We go first to what we are feeling. And you can even think of how you evaluate, which is an interesting thing that we do, church itself, a church service. You leave and you can think, well, I like that. I felt good about this. That really connected with me. I like that. What we are feeling, what we want or like, what we prefer, and what we, sh- we think should happen in the world. This is the first call. That's because there's a reason we all do this. There's a big reason we all do this. And that's because this is a fallen world and we're sinful. 
And so you come here to church, and even good Christian people, you're pretty convinced that you know what everybody else needs. I could go through it right now, and you could tell me, and I know most of you, and you're not, you're not afraid to tell me what other people need. What we think should happen, the Christian call is entirely different. The Christian call, Philippians, the second chapter. If you have any comfort from Jesus, and of course the assumption is we do have some comfort from Jesus. I mean, could we feel that in here today? Those of us who know Christ have known Christ for some time. Do you have any comfort from Jesus Christ? Oh, I, I certainly do. If you have any encouragement, if you have any love, you know this love of Jesus Christ, then the call is a participation in the Spirit of Christ with these words. Then you ought to have the same mind as Christ. And now, though that's a beautiful invitation... To me, Todd, you ought to have the same mind of Christ. What's one of my first responses when I hear that? Repentance. Because I am so far from having the mind of Christ. But that's the call. Put your name there. Every one of you. You ought to have the same mind as Christ. And then they're going to describe it. So the writer here is is Paul in Philippians as well. Same as Romans. You ought to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. The same love. And I'll describe it for you, he says. You then will do nothing out of selfish ambition. I mean, we could just close the doors here and leave right now and just work on that for a while. Do nothing. Don't run a church out of selfish ambition. Don't run a business out of selfish ambition. Don't pursue education out of selfish ambition. Not if you're following the mind of Christ. Don't do this out of selfish, anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others as, and now the word here in the Greek has a few meanings, um, count others as better. One, one of the ways I think of it is prior, like think of others before you think of yourself. Think of others as more significant than yourself. In other words, today might be a great day because somebody here is feeling great and I feel terrible, but it's a great day. Think of others before you think of yourself. And why? The whole title of today's sermon. Because of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. That's who he is. Bear with those who are weak. Don't please self, but please them. And then in this Romans 15 text we have, your life is to build them up. But you think that they exist to build you up. Your life, because you are called by Christ, your life is to build up every person in this room. Now, of course, you can't know each other to the same degree. You can't. But your life is to build them up, not to tear them down. And certainly not to treat them as if you know just what's wrong with them and how they need to change. Why? Why do we live like this? The answer, again, is clear. You could say it because I've said it a few times. Because of Jesus Christ. This text is going to say it over and over. For Christ, or as Christ did this, you are to do this. Because of Jesus. Verse 4 then moves us to this excursus. This, it takes the main theme 
and makes a little point outside of the main theme. And the point is about Scripture. So he's introduced this idea that you're going to live like this because of Jesus. And then he kind of turns and says, you know, um, this Scripture speaks of Jesus Christ all through the Scriptures. But certainly for us as Christians who have the New Testament, we have these Gospels of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to say how valuable Scripture is. In other words, if you look at Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, you will see who he was, how he lived, how he treated people. The value of Scripture for reminding us of this. And the question comes up, as we discover Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, what difference will any of this make? I say it this way. There is, and I'm aware that you could hear this in numbers of different churches, but there is nowhere else where you will hear this. Why are we to live in this way where we accept and love one another? What kind of answers are you going to get in the culture? Because our world will, at times, have a value of love and acceptance, though it gets pretty broken down pretty easily. The horrible shame is that that love and acceptance gets broken down in religious communities, and even Christian churches begin to act as if the outsider is enemy. There is no outsider to Jesus Christ. Not one. He gave his life for every single person for the life of this world. There is no outsider. But you will hear in the world kind of these calls to say, you should love one another, we should be good to one another. But the, but the reasons why, what are, the, what are given? Why should you live to please your neighbor? For peace, so that you don't get in a fight with your neighbor and have to go to court, maybe. For goodness, because it's a good thing to do, to be nice, okay? Because it's the right thing to do, perhaps. Why am I to live in accord, encouraging, loving, and building up my neighbor? Why, why am I to do that? There is one answer. In a way, there's only one answer. It's above all, because of Jesus Christ. And when do I have to stop doing that? Well, I'll just say one thing. When did Jesus stop? This should give us tremendous hope because we're given a system of values by our culture in this world that have to do with building up ourselves. And then we judge ourselves on that and then some of us in this world can feel like failures because we haven't quite made or we don't have the status or something that we think we might deserve or that somebody else has. This gives us complete freedom from that because that's not the goal for a Christian. The goal for a Christian is to let go of selfish ambition and love as Christ loved. Some of you might even feel how freeing that is. You don't have anything to prove. Nothing to prove. Except to love as Christ loved. To grow in that. You are free. You are free. You are free indeed. And the world offers no freedom. I mean, religion, faith, is often presented as the thing that's constraining. Christian faith, properly understood, is not that. You are free from these terrible burdens that you have put upon yourself and that the world has put upon you. And you can imagine yourself walking into the room and feeling like you've made it, whatever that means. A room full of people and you're somehow a little bit more up. Christianity doesn't have a place for that. You you might be fortunate enough to have that in your life, and depending on how you handle yourself, that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
But the Christian virtue is that that's never what you're seeking. You are free. Here's the mistake that we so often make. We know that God is sovereign in Christian theology and faith. So I could say to you this morning, is God sovereign? Yes, God is sovereign. We could even sing a song about it. God is all-powerful. Praise God, He's all-powerful. God is mighty and strong. All of these wonderful, superlative, big, strong declarations. And they are all true. The trouble is, we then go looking for God in the lofty places. And we confuse the nature of the lofty places because the world gives us a particular version of what lofty places mean. They mean earthly success. Right? Whatever kind of human system we're going by. In this part of the world, I mean, we're drowning in it. Because we live in this um, upper middle class part of the world where it's so terribly expensive to live. And all kinds of ideas of what lofty means come to us and we just grab onto them. It's not really okay to do that on an earthly level. It certainly isn't okay to do that and look for God. Because we're already told where we'll find God in Christian faith. And that's in Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The exact representation of the Father. And what did Jesus do from this lofty place? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a servant. And so, to some degree, and I know I'm taking artistic license with this, but grant me that. You won't find Jesus in those lofty places. You'll find him first sitting with his back against the wall in an alley beside somebody who's got a needle in their arm. I always have in my head when I think of this type of thing, an old U2 song. I think it's called If God Would Send His Angels. And it says, See His Mother Dealing in a Doorway. Talking about Jesus. See Father Christmas with a begging bowl. Jesus' sister's eyes are blistered. The high street never looks so low. Jesus is sovereign and Lord and mighty and strong. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. But you will find Him in the low places. And listen to me. You will find him in the low places of your life. Because he will be there. You don't want to be in that hospital room with your loved one who's dying. You don't want to face whatever adversity you're facing. But I will tell you, and I will give you whatever it means for me, my guarantee, if you look for Jesus in those places, you will find him. He's much stronger than any human declaration of strength. So let's imagine, hypothetically, a political candidate who likes to talk about how great he is. I'm going to get political. And I'm going to say that way of talking is absolutely not Christian. So you can imagine if that were to happen. With bluster and arrogance saying about how great he is and if just he had power, then everything would be okay and everybody loves me and I'm the best. 
if you look at how Jesus took his strength, in act, the one who's actually strong, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. If you see how strong Jesus is and gave us this example of sacrifice and, and love to the point of the cross, then when you see these declarations of bluster and strength and everybody loves me and I'm so fantastic, you will, people like me at least, will have one response, and that is a kind of laughter. It is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. All you have to do is an imaginative exercise. Whether you believe that Jesus is who he says he is or not, and I do, I believe that Jesus is preeminent, that means above all things. I believe that Jesus is pre-existent, which means before all things, before anything exists, there is Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together. Everything is in him. He is in very nature God. He is the exact representation of the Father of all creation. This is Jesus Christ, that strong, that high, that big. Now I imagine him going to microphones time after time, holding press conferences, putting his name on the side of buses and airplanes. It's ridiculous. We can even turn our churches. This is now something that hurts us as Christians. We can even turn our churches into celebrations of earthly power and success. But Jesus, this is the text, but Jesus did not please himself. Why are you to live this way, building up your neighbor instead of yourself? Because here's the truth. It will cost you. You might not have as much. You might not have the status that you think you might deserve. Somebody else might get more. Do you understand that's Christian? Why are we to do this? Because Jesus Christ. There's a Christian word that just has uh, the reality of Christ all through it, and that's the word renunciation. He renounced these, this power and strength in order to come to the cross. And that's why on Good Friday, I'll never, I don't think, I mean maybe, get through a Good Friday without breaking down in tears. Because what strikes me is, why did you do this? You, you didn't need me. You have no need. And you had perfect communion with the Father. And yet you became obedient even to death on a cross that I could know you and the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a renunciation. You hear the story this week about these, uh, I think it was two men who were put on a bus from Saskatchewan. Um, And and, uh, they're like, Uh, homeless people from Saskatchewan and I think one or both have mental health difficulties often is the case right? Uh, and rather than being cared for in Saskatchewan they were given bus tickets to Vancouver Um, and so they live now in our fair city Uh, and of course there's all political kind of conversation about this one of the interesting things is the BC government didn't condemn it that much right away and then why, why why isn't the BC government condemning it and it's because the Brad Wall, the premier of Saskatchewan, shares the political affiliation with the, our current government, our current provincial government, and so they don't want to criticize too much. If it had been the opposite you know, thing, they would criticize like crazy. I, I don't share the story with you for political reasons. I share it with you because of the witness of a Christian organization that uh, found out this was happening, 
found out these guys were on the bus, and before they got to the bus station in Vancouver, sent representatives there and said, we have a place for you to stay tonight. We'll help you, we'll care for you, and that's the Union Gospel Mission. Now, why did they do it? Because of Jesus. Verse 5 is this call of and for community. This large idea that as you seek to accept and love one another, what you need and what will happen is the renewing of your mind. It goes, it goes, it reminds us of the second chapter of, of Philippians. You, you will have a new mind, the mind of Jesus Christ. You can't simply determine to do this, though you need to determine to do this. But what you need is a renewal of mind so that you're able to care first about what the, others, what the other person thinks. So the nice, easy, trite example I give, and I know it's kind of silly now, but I'll give it again anyway, is it's why I like when we sing Shine, Jesus, Shine. Now, we don't sing it much anymore. But I don't like it because I enjoy it, because I don't enjoy that song. Is that okay to say? Just don't, I don't like it. It seems a little parady to me and a little bouncy. And I feel like I'm at Expo 86 or something. Da, 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 big screens, and, right? However, and I say this with my heart and Christian love. Some of you here love that song. And I don't mean to mock you or the song when I say what I just said. And so if and when we do sing it, I love it. Because I don't need to like it. My worship has to do with your worship. And I hope, in God's grace, that you afford me the same. And others around you. And the promise of the text is, as you realize that worship isn't about you feeling something first, that you realize that worship is about you accepting the other, I hope that as you see that, you will see what the text says, that as you do that, you are going to be given a new mind. You just have whole different categories. You don't have to pretend you like something. Verse 6, so that together we may glorify God. The promise is that as we accept one another, this is what glorifies God. You know what broken worship feels like? I mean, that's, that's a bad term because it puts too much... Uh, Puts too much responsibility on the people in the booth. So now that I've got their attention, I'll say, you know what broken worship feels like, right? When you're worshiping and you're caught up in worship and something happens in the room or beside you or, you know, somebody knocks you, bumps you, or, and, and you just feel like, oh, I, I, I'm, I, I fell out of worship now. So it might happen in a whole bunch of different ways in church. And by the way, it happens in every church, Right? Sometimes I feel it, and uh, Allison, you did a perfect job today, so I can give this example, okay? Sometimes I feel it if the slides don't change quite on time, because we don't have hymnals in front of us anymore. And so if that slide doesn't change on time, and I don't know the next words, then I, I feel like I'm stuttering a little bit, right? And so then I can be like, oh, I wish that it was, you know, smoother or whatever. You start to think, these are the things that broke my worship. This text is going to tell you what breaks your worship. Not saying that some of these smaller things don't matter. They can have some significance. But they don't matter really much at all in light of what really breaks your worship. And you know what breaks your worship? You. You and me and our silly, sinful minds. That's what breaks your worship. 
And so whatever stutters there are, whatever things that use those instead to remind yourself that you are so self-centered and so sinful that you're more upset about this little thing happening than you are desiring to truly worship. Because if you're desiring to truly worship, you will realize that it's about accepting those around. As you accept one another because of Jesus, for Christ, this is what Christ did to you. Then, as you do that, here's the promise. You bring praise to God. You thought that praising God was about singing. You thought that praising God was about being caught up in worship. Some kind of feeling or expression or supernatural expression. In this text, bringing praise to God is about accepting one another and being grateful for this love that he has shown us all. Now, you may well, after that, get to being caught up in the singing. But if you get the first thing wrong, the second thing isn't worth a lot. I mean that. If you get the first thing wrong, the second thing isn't worth a lot. You know why? Because you'll have to keep changing churches. You'll have to keep saying, I like that worship song better than this one. You'll have to have all your categories. But if you get the first thing right, oh, (laughs) now you can worship. Trouble is, as churches, we just try try to give you the second thing all the time. We try to be all things to all people, make you feel something. Sales, that's all it is. We must, and at times we're still miles away, but we must stop acting as if our first spiritual activity is to reject others and make demands about what we want. This is not the first activity of Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet, for so many religious sensibilities, the first, Christ, the first thing seems to be you have to know what to reject and you have to figure out what, what you want to demand something. The first Christian activity is renunciation. Letting go of self, repentance. And then this incredible statement in verse 8, which we didn't read, but it is just remarkable. For Christ has become a servant. If anybody... And I think... You know what I think sometimes when I see this? I think, what would this sound like in a culture where they had like stark divides between servant and Lord? So yes, Downton Abbey, something like that. But some cultures are even more harsh than those stratified class cultures. So this text through, through the centuries in, in our world has at times been just shattering to people. Jesus Christ became... And he, like if you think of Downton Abbey, that Lord Grantham, people being called Lord, which is just, it's hilarious. Right? Thank you, Lawrence. You get the joke. And I think that's a particularly Christian sensibility. Any, any person being called Lord is funny. The one who actually is Lord became a servant. Now you go live. It's always a direction. The direction of Jesus Christ is this renunciation, this giving up. And then, yes, God raised him from the dead. And at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. But you want to get to that without the renunciation, and it won't happen. It won't happen for Jesus. It's not the way he chose, and it won't happen in your life. 
and whatever false status or prestige that the world offers you and that can be blessings in some ways. But the direction in Christian faith is renunciation. It's a a very strong call for us and it's not an easy thing to hear. Jesus became a servant. Now you. And then verse 13, the end of our consideration of this text and then we'll move to Palm Sunday and it's the perfect segue because now you're going to have Jesus coming in on a donkey into the city being proclaimed for a few minutes and a few hours as earthly king. And he's going to reject it all. So Palm Sunday is simply an acting out of what we've just been talking about in this sermon. Watch what Jesus does. And just put any political figure, most from our day and age, Imagine that. The adulation of the crowd and you say, no, no, no. It's a perfect ending. So now, in order to show God's truthfulness, the end of this text says, Christ has become a servant. This is the evangelical call. Christ has become a servant. Why? So that the world would know but we still don't believe that. We still think that the world is going to know the gospel by our impressiveness. Power, strength. The world will know the gospel in your life personally by how you have been able to exercise this renunciation. The text says it. He became a servant to show God's truthfulness. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The God of hope. Not the God of my personal taste. And I do have personal taste. Trust me. I, I can tell you what I like and don't like. Not the God of your worship style. Not even the God of your spiritual desire or experience. The God of hope. Always more. Always something higher than you could imagine. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This is the promise as Jesus gives his life for the life of the world. That in seeing this and in letting go ourselves, we become filled with a joy and a peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound in hope. In other words, I don't need all that the world offers because my hope is in Jesus Christ. The one who showed me. Showed me his way. It's it's more. It's better. It's the hope of this world. Let's pray. I'm just do I do all these things all the time. I'm doing an imaginative exercise in my brain right now, and that's I'm imagining if we had some, um, like either marketing specialists or um, church growth specialists or something who met with Jesus back in the day and told him, "Okay, we've got a plan for how you can attract followers." Um, just what he would do. Um, I thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you knew what we needed and what we need more 
than anything we could think or say or suggest. We still don't get it. I know what this is because I do this. We still act in this world as if certain measures of our own human perspective make a person worth more or worth less. You, Lord Jesus, never did that. You died for me. Who would do that? And you died for every one of us here. And you were the lofty one, highly exalted. But now we see that it is in giving your life that you have become truly exalted. Show us what this means in our lives to love one another well. Make us wise to see some of these turnings in the world and not to judge or despise others, but to seek your goodness, to know the great salvation that is in you. I say to you again, we have uh, available prayer at the back. If you have never prayed to accept Jesus Christ, you want to simply say, yes, uh, I long to live my life in Christ. You can pray with people at the back or others here or even yourself, Lord Jesus Christ, confessing my sinfulness. I trust in you. Come into my life and guide me and show me something more. You pray that and you tell somebody. You confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. If you're a Christian here who is, is feeling weighed down by the, the judgments of the world, I've got news for you. You're free from it. You're free and free and free. But you have this, it would seem like a burden if, if you didn't know that it was freedom. You have this freedom now. This responsibility and freedom to seek to love as Christ loves. So now go and do that. And if you need to pray in this letting go of the things that burden you down as a Christian, there's people here to pray with, or you pray, you stay back on your own. So Heavenly Father, guide us in this time. May Jesus Christ, even as you, Lord Jesus, went to the cross, may you be exalted in our lives. Because we've known this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.